0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We've had a lot of people on this daily show, but so far at least, we haven't had anyone who's been sued by the current President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Today, however, we're changing all that. Uh, Timothy L. O'Brien is a a very distinguished American journalist. He's worked for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. He's currently working for Bloomberg News. He's the author of a very provocative, perhaps too provocative book in 2005 entitled uh, Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald. And one of the consequences of that book, that 2005 book, is that uh, Tim was sued by Trump himself for five billion dollars. Uh, Tim, I'm not sure whether I should, uh, whether I should uh, be, uh, be be uh, telling you well done or or, 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 or or giving you a hug. How do you feel about being sued by the president of the United States?
1: Well, I, I always accept both hugs and and praise <laughs> gladly. So either one is fine with me. You know. Um, In the perverse world that we live in as journalists, uh, I didn't mind getting sued by Donald Trump. It gave my attorneys subpoena power. And in the course of the litigation, um, we got his tax returns and a number of his business records. We deposed him uh, for two eight-hour sessions. And a lot of good information came out of that that I wasn't able to get prior to that through reporting or spending quite a bit of time with him. I know, you know, say my wife is a, is a lawyer, and every time I say to her that I enjoyed the litigation, it drives her crazy. And and of course, there were parts of it that were dreary and a headache. But by and large, I had I was fortunate. I was at the New York Times at the time. I had the Times as institutional backing. Uh, my publisher, Warner Books, hired uh, an incredible trio of attorneys, uh, Mary Jo White, Andrew Levine, um, and Andrew, um, um, oh my gosh, that's horrible. And Andrew, the Andrews and Mary, Mary Joe were fantastic lawyers and they took Trump's lawyers, um, to the cleaners essentially. And, um, it was dragged out over a number of years, but the reality was we really thumped him in court and he ended up, the suit got dismissed. Um, he appealed, the appellate court wouldn't even hear it. And it got sent back down and, and um, it cost him quite a bit of money. It didn't cost me a dime. I thought, you know, when the, when it finally was all said and done um, in um, 2011, that I, Donald Trump would no longer be in my life anymore. Um, And then lo and behold, uh, you know, he rolled down the escalator at Trump Tower in 2015 and declared he would be running for president. And I had actually, you know, I had actually, be- the, I first began covering Trump. I was a research assistant to an investigative reporter named Dwayne Barrett uh, of The Village Voice, who wrote the first big Trump book in 1992. And so I was an, an, a research assistant on that book. So I actually began covering Trump. I'm Embarrassed to say as far back as 1992.
0: Well, I don't think it's just me who's giving you a hug, Um, Tim. I think uh, all our listeners will give you a collective hug for taking him on, uh, or at least being taken on by him and winning. Now, of course, he was suing you because you claimed that he didn't earn or wasn't worth as much money as he claimed he was worth. Very briefly, what was the lawsuit about?
1: You know, the lawsuit essentially was a classic libel suit he said that um because my book um portrayed his business career in a negative light and lowballed uh how much in his mind how much money he had that he had been defamed his reputation had been damaged and that it had harmed his business prospects um so he sued me for $5 billion, as you pointed out, which by the way, was significantly more than the advance that I got for the book. Mm. Um, the $5 billion, I think he settled on that number because he was telling me during the course of my reporting that he was worth $6 billion, right. um, which, which he certainly wasn't. And I had sources who had him well below a billion. So the $5 billion represented the difference between what the book said he was worth and what he said he was worth. But of course- He is not a very sophisticated or smart man. He's easily, in the modern era, the least sophisticated and most ignorant person to occupy the Oval Office. And he digs these holes for himself um, that he often can't get out of. And he never should have sued a reporter on business grounds because it opened him up to discovery around his business dealings and his finances. Tim,
0: what does your experience in and out of court with Trump tell you and us about his obsessive sensibility and secrecy over his taxes? Why doesn't he want us to know his taxes?
1: Um, So as you know, I saw the taxes in the course of the litigation, those documents were um, given to us under a protective order. So I'm not allowed to discuss the specifics of what I saw in there, but I can discuss generally I think why he doesn't want those taxes to get out into the wild. Um, And two reasons are more germane now than, uh, and probably more front of mind for him now than some of the other ones. But, um, you know, first and foremost, it would show that he's not as charitable as he's always claimed to be. Um, Surprise, uh, surprise, right? Surprise, surprise, right. It would show, um, I think, details about some of his domestic business dealings that he wouldn't want revealed. But I think the, I think two of the big ones for him is one, it would show that his businesses overall just aren't as robust as he has claimed them to be. Uh, and that's always been his calling card. His identity is very wrapped up in being a member of of the multi-billionaire club, which he just simply isn't. Um, and then secondarily and most important, I think right now in terms of his presidency is... Um, uh, it would show sources of foreign income, which is a very important little number in the world right now, because I think looming over Trump's head from the moment he began campaigning and through his inauguration into this very day is this question about the degree to which his financial entanglements overseas uh, or domestically shape both um, his policymaking. Uh, his refusal to authentically distance himself from his companies, um, his odd, perverse and damaging dances with with um, autocrats like Vladimir Putin, and so on and so forth. and uh, And so I think that that's I think those are big reasons why he doesn't want those out.
0: You spent a lot of time with the guy. I mean, I'm sure you've been asked this question many, many times, but very, very briefly, what's he like? Is he as obnoxious, as annoying, as narcissistic as he appears?
1: He sure is. He's, you know, <laughs> um, there's just, you know, you, you've you got it. Now, I think New Yorkers have always known this about him. I think that uh, um, he, he didn't really get exposed nationally for who he is until he became president. Uh, um, you know, the, the Donald Trump of The Apprentice, which is one of the things I think that gave him the, the foundational steel he needed to get elected, really remade him in the early 2000s as this can-do entrepreneur rather than what he had been through most of the 1990s, which was a punchline about jokes, about the excesses of the 1980s. Um, and, uh, you know, Liz Smith, uh, uh, a, a very shrewd and observant and kind uh, gossip columnist, the late Liz Smith, um, she was from Texas and she had covered Trump in the New York tabloids for decades. And she said to me once, she said, you know, honey, the only thing you need to know about Donald Trump is that he is a seven-year-old grown old. And, And I say this to people all the time, you know, Trump has been protected by these sort of three rings of fire throughout his whole life that has prevented him from learning from his own mistakes and insulated him from the consequences of his mistakes. First and foremost, he was born to a wealthy father who bailed him out of educational mishaps, uh, gave him a job, gave him both the financial and and networking support he needed to just launch right away into the real estate business, helped bail him out when he was teetering on the verge of personal bankruptcy, had his father not been a wealthy man Willing to bail him out, Donald Trump would have been bankrupted into oblivion in the early 1990s. And then he gets the second, you know, ring around him, uh, the power of celebrity that came through The Apprentice. Um, and famously, he conveyed what that allowed him to do in that Access Hollywood tape if you're a star, they let you do it. Um, mm. And then he becomes president of the United States and he gets this profound legal um moat built around him and and ironically tragicomically and um unfortunately um the most i think um amoral uh narcissistic and corrupt president of the modern era (laughs) goes into the white house with all this protection around him from the very things we all need to be vigilant about
0: Oh, so he's kind of having the last laugh in in a way, or at least he seems to be having the last laugh, Tim. Um, a, a lot has been made of Trump. You talked about this as being a, a a reality television figure. It's hard to know if there is a real Donald Trump, and if there is one, uh, where the 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 reality television star begins and ends. Uh, to what extent do you think? The whole presidency needs to be interpreted in terms of reality television.
1: I think that's a good start. I, I think it's really important for people to understand that Donald Trump thinks very cinematically about himself. Mm. Uh, before he went into his father's real estate business, he toyed with the idea of of going to Hollywood. He was always fascinated by the old school Hollywood producers of the nineteen forties, you know the David O. Selznick's of the world. Um, he liked the idea of glamour and wealth and showmanship that attached themselves to that world, and um, and I think he is constantly thinking about himself as the central figure at center stage, and he is the director, producer, writer, and uh, promoter of his ongoing cinematic reality and what What you call
0: you call this the art i mean you you, at least in in your 2005 book you call it the art of being the donald right
1: yes yeah because he's i mean he's an unhinged man first and foremost so he he doesn't have the kind of regrets or um empathy most well-adjusted people do uh you add that to this deep uh insecurity he has about his intellect his wealth Um, his appeal and which is his, which is why he is so obsessed with crowds and ratings. Um, and, uh, and this sort of energizer bunny willfulness to just blow through these, these often hilarious, more often, um, disturbing, uh, and dangerous mistakes he makes, um, and he just plows forward because what he does is he constantly reinvents in his mind a new reality about what's happening in front of him, and he, he it's he explains things away, he blames other people, um, and he doesn't really accept um, responsibility.
0: So you've presented Trump as a, a cinematic figure, and perhaps his narrative in terms of his life as a kind of movie. Um, is the coronavirus crisis the, the final chapter when it all comes crumbling down? It's always
1: risky <laughs> to say everything is going to come tr- crumbling down because we keep on Trump. saying it, right? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I, I turned to my wife in twenty fifteen when he did not announce he's running for president again, and I said, "This is like the ghost of Christmas past." You know, I can hear the the chains rattling around up in the attic. Now he's coming down for another visit. Um, uh, here's what's unique about the coronavirus is every other, and let's just to make life easy, you know, he obviously had an existential crisis when he bankrupted a series of companies in the 1990s and he almost went personally bankrupt and he essentially became an outcast in the financial world after that. But he was able to satisfy himself by becoming this cartoon figure who appeared on gossip shows and the Howard Stern Show, and he sort of lived off of the family trust and was just cruising along doing that really until he became the star of the apprentice um and then he got a little new gas out of that and then he ran for the presidency um but if if we just can find this what we're going to discuss right now to the presidency, most of um the adverse situations he's faced up until now have had segments of his political um opponents or segments of voters or segments of the greater population focused on it, whether it was, you know, the Russia uh, investigation and the Russian probe with Mueller, there was, that That was the people who were interested in that were a segment of the population. Um, the impeachment, the same thing, a segment of the population, the horrors that he's committed along the Southern border with, with, with migrants. Um also, a segmented part of the population, and on and on. Some of his policy failures, whether um, uh, you know he was unable to get uh, health reform through, um, he engineered a big tax cut that benefited the wealthy but didn't benefit average Americans, who he came to the presidency saying he would support. All of these different issues never had a united front of opposition. What's unique about the coronavirus is that it's an af- it's affecting Americans up and down the ladder, regardless of class, creed, or color. Everyone well, although, well, everyone, but some more
0: than others, right? The, the coronavirus. No question.
1: Virus. No question, but it's front of mind for everyone. Obviously, I think people of color and low-income people are bearing the brunt of this, which is unjust and unfortunate, and a discussion probably for another day. I'm simply saying that the coronavirus as an event is front of mind for everyone right now. It affects everyone's livelihood some more than others. It affects everyone's health, potentially, some more than others. It's an event that everyone cares about, unlike every other challenge that's faced Donald Trump. And then you add into that this this spectacular mistake he has made of um, having regular press conferences in which his buffoonery, ignorance, and yeah. lack of empathy are on constant display. Uh, And in an effort to try to change history, which is what he always does, getting back to his cinematic thinking and the reality distortion field and his narcissism, um, he wanted to change the narrative that actually I did take the proper actions to corral the coronavirus and our government was firing on all cylinders when the fact pattern obviously shows that wasn't true. And his behavior in these press conferences show that he was never up to it from the very beginning. And all you really needed was that one press conference in which he recommended shining light into our bodies or injecting disinfectants into our lungs as possible avenues of exploration for curing ourselves of the coronavirus? To know how unhinged he is, how unable he is to be serious about the facts, and his 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 myriad faults as a leader.
0: I'm really taken, Tim, by your 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 cinematic allusions. Um- is there a rosebud in in uh, in Trump's yes. existential <laughs> uh, being? Uh, you know, talking about. I mean, he's obviously not Citizen Kane, although I think in in some ways his obsession with cleanliness and isolation does. And he's through. obsessed with
1: Orson Welles, and, right. and Citizen Kane is one of his favorite movies. We watched it together. Are oh, you? Did? Um, <laughs> yeah, we watched Sunset Boulevard, Pulp Fiction, Citizen Kane, and then some. The capper was he All we also watched the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie because he thinks that Jean Jean-Claude Van Damme is 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 also on the same cinematic level as or, as uh, Orson Welles. Um uh you know he, he the the scenes he remembers from movies are very revealing are have you are you familiar with Sunset Boulevard? Yeah. Uh, um you know there's this one scene where um Norma Desmond is in her uh, living room screening a film from her silent movie glory days, and with William Holden, William Holden's character, and and as she gets through it, she becomes progressively enraged, and she stands up in the film light, and um, uh, you know, starts you know berating Hollywood, saying if they've forgotten who I am. You know, they've forgotten what a star is. I'll show them. And Trump said to me, wrong. he goes, this is an amazing scene. This this is the most amazing <laughs> scene maybe in any movie ever. And I said, why? And he said, because if you've got that mojo, people can't forget about it. And they run, they risk it at their own peril. You know, that's that's where he comes from. And um, anyway, and he really related, you know, in, in terms of Orson Welles, you know, Wells makes Citizen Kane when he's 26 years old, and he makes a couple of very good movies after that. The Magnificent Ambersons, for one, yeah, um, uh, and and a couple of other great movies. But, um, he's but he could never get, he could never get the money, right? He was too too eccentric, too difficult. All to right, carry. right. But also, it was it was also I think one of the codas in his life was he had his greatest success when he was 26, and right. he never matched it again. Yeah, and that terrified Trump because Trump put up Trump Tower when he was in his 30s. And it remains his signature success, probably until he ran for president. And it terrified him that he would, all, that would be the, the best thing in his whole life. Um, now, I've gotten us off track before we started raffle, rifling through the, oh, about Ooh. cinema and movies. Well, no,
0: remember, to... my question was really about a, a rosebud moment. Um, I mean, when, when Trump, and yeah. I, I think he's usually alone in his bed, because I can't imagine anyone would really want to sleep with him. But when he's alone in his bed and he can't sleep, and the television cameras are off and every everything is off. uh, Is he capable of
1: any kind of reflection on the. No, I think most of the time what Donald Trump is thinking about is food, sex, money, sports, and revenge, and not necessarily in that order. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, I was asked recently, uh, a few months ago on a TV show, uh, uh, one of the Sunday shows, um, You've gotten into Donald Trump's mind. What's it like to be in Donald Trump's mind? And I said, "Well, you'll discover when you get in there. The only things you're going to find are a golf club, a cheeseburger, a porn video, and somebody else's credit card. Um, This is not a complex man. Uh, This is not a man prone to reflection or remorse, because I think he has, you know, because of his narcissism, his narcissistic disorder. Um, He doesn't really regret anything, and and that." You know, that is why one of his great strengths is that he is an incredible survivor. He does really plow through adversity like Godzilla and very little clings to him emotionally. It obviously clings to him reputationally, but it doesn't really cling to him psychologically or emotionally. Um, In terms of rosebud, there is a rosebud for Donald Trump and it's his father, Mm, yeah. Um f- you know Fred Trump looms very large over Donald Trump's world and mind uh in his office in New York in Trump Tower um one of the most prominent photos for years was this black and white photo of his father a headshot of his father and when Trump first uh um moved into the oval office in his first month or two months in the oval office the only picture on on the console table Behind the resolute desk in the Oval Office was that photo of Fred. Nothing of his children. Nothing of his. Yeah. Other mother, you know, his mother. Or his mother. No, no. And I think, and he, Fred, I think, weighs on him in a number of ways. Fred is was an authentically made, uh, self-made man. Uh, Fred came from nothing, didn't have a father. Spending, you know, millions and millions of dollars. Trump has always lied about how much money he got from Fred. Trump got at least several hundred million dollars from Fred. And he's always said, I only got a million. You know, Donald Trump is one of those guys who was born on third base and runs around telling people he's hit a triple. Whereas um, uh, Fred really, really pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and was a very tough character. Um, Donald's older brother couldn't really handle the pressure. He had a lot of trouble with alcohol. He died of alcoholism. Um, Donald is a teetotaler and and really i think his father is a real key to understanding who he is his father had this view his father made his money in developing public housing essentially in the you know the 1940s 50s and 60s and um he got bounced out of the federal programs for public housing because he had um played fast and loose with books and with his books and billing the government then he got kicked out of the state programs for building housing for the same reasons and within the trump family the argument about what happened to fred trump wasn't that oh daddy skirted the limits of the law and he had to pay the penalty it was oh government came and took took daddy's candy away and that's what always happens if you're talented and rich and successful like dad somebody's going to come and take it away from you and in Trump's mind, and it's he articulates this often, there, there is an institution or a force out there that is coming to take things away, and it's it explains his racism, it explains his xenophobia about uh, people of color migrating across the southern border. It explains um, uh, the mojo he gets on the campaign trail when he rails against Washington which I think really tapped into the legitimate fears and needs of average Americans in middle America who, who were at sea after the 2008 financial crisis. But Trump arrived in this moment in, in 2015 and 2016, having spent decades talking about getting screwed by big institutions. Tim, we've talked
0: about books. Let's uh, Sorry, we talked about movies, which I, I thought was fascinating. I, I, I can't imagine, or I, I think I can imagine actually Trump um, watching Reservoir Dogs, or perhaps he should have been in Reservoir Dogs. Um, but finally, uh, actually, I, I, this is this is a, a conversation for a future show because I don't want to get into it now. But I, I have to say that my guess about his father was he was a horrible bully. And for everyone who says, well, Trump had it easy. He had a wealthy father who gave him a lot of cash. and That, of course, is true. But my guess is that you wouldn't, be as problematic as Trump if you weren't horribly bullied as a child, but that's another subject finally well, um, just, just
1: remember just remember Fred ultimately couldn't handle him and sent him off to military school yeah so maybe <laughs> maybe
0: he bullied his father but <laughs> yes.
1: finally Tim uh, we talked as I said, we talked about movies,
0: but let's end with books um you wrote this uh, wonderful book Trump Nation, which uh, as I said, a great compliment you were sued for five billion dollars um in in the world of Trump and America um, or, or the America of Trump I hope actually you're thinking of writing something maybe a, a novel about this because you seem to have more insight into Trump than, than almost anyone but what everyones stuck at home now what should they be reading to make more apart from Trump nation what should they be reading to make more sense of uh, of, of, of trump nation or trump world is it the great gatsby are they great american novels or books that really capture the insanity and absurdity of our age
1: i think books are too classy a genre to actually understand donald trump i think you're better off looking at sort of saturday morning cartoons like uh <laughs> you know baby huey or heckle and jekyll or the flintstones <laughs> um uh you know there's been a number uh, um of good biographies of Trump, uh, G- Gwenda Blair wrote a fantastic history of the Trumps. Uh, Wayne Barrett, I think, was Trump's first biographer. His book, "Trump: The Deals and the Downfall," are is I think an indispensable reference work for anyone who wants to know about the early Trump and a lot about Fred. Um, you know, I think uh, right now, you know, the coronavirus has settled over New York City with such force that I, uh, you know, one book. I, I tell my friends in New York a lot recently that I recommended a lot to them is, is winter's tale by Mark Halperin. It's a gorgeous novel about the New York of, of another era of New York, the New York of sort of 1870 to 1920. And it's beautifully, it's a beautifully wrought novel. Um, I just finished reading, um, Ron Chernow's grant biography, and I'm also reading, uh, the latest installment in the Arcadi Renko detective novels from, Martin Cruz Smith. His first big book was Gorky Park back in 1981. And I'm reading The Siberian Dilemma, which just came out uh, at the end of last year. Um, so that's, I guess, that's where I'm at right now in books.
0: You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure and the team at Lit Hub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.